Good singing. You may be seated. Now, this part I do know I'm supposed to do, and that is preach. Take your Bibles tonight and turn with me to John chapter number 10. We have looked throughout this year on the communion services uh, at a different grouping of things that uh, revolve around our actual salvation. So we've looked at redemption, we've looked at justification, we've looked at sanctification. Tonight we're looking at our security. And there is no greater passage of Scripture to rest in than John chapter 10 dealing with our security and the security of our salvation. I had debated as to when I would preach this. There is a communion coming up in December, but I did not want to spend a lot of time dealing with Hanukkah. But actually, this happens during Hanukkah. Pick up our reading this evening in John 10 and verse 22. The Bible says, And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication. That, by the way, is Hanukkah. When the oil did not go out for the Maccabees as they fought off Rome, staved them off in their desperation. And it was winter, the Bible says, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. They wanted to be sure. They wanted to know that they could know. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Let's pray tonight as we jump in looking at the secure salvation that you have through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the truth of the Word of God. Lord, I thank you for what it has meant in my life. Many a times, especially in my early Christian development and in my wayward walk from you, your Holy Spirit, through repentance restoration and reformation of my life brought comfort through these very passages that we are forever secure, not by our power, not even by our purity, but because of who you are, because of what you have given to us. It is your salvation, it is your gift that you will not rescind, that you will not remove. Bless us tonight, Lord, as we look at this concept and as we dive deep into these texts and other passages that help us to know that we are forever secure when we pray in earnest, asking Jesus to save us from our sins. Bless us, I pray this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we finished our revival. How many of you thoroughly enjoyed the last week of preaching on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday? It was wonderful. I thoroughly enjoyed Brother Summerdorf's preaching. But you know what usually happens on the back end of a revival or around a revival? The devil finds his way, or as Brother Dave properly put it, maybe the demonic realm of number 642, whomever it is, the devil and his minions and our flesh find a way to begin to question within ourselves, 
if we're in fact really saved. There's no greater joy that the devil and your flesh and the world can have than to know that a Christian is confused about the salvation they have been given. The biggest question that I often get asked during times of revival or around Easter time is this, Pastor, I wish I could be settled and know that my faith is real. That statement usually comes from one of three sources. First, you never actually trusted Christ. Now, as a pastor, I am not going to go around and tell everybody, you're not saved, and you're not saved, and you're not saved. But if you constantly question it, then you've never truly repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ alone as your Savior. That's one possibility. But for many, it's because of the second source, and that is because there is a massive sin in your life that you refuse to take care of. I don't know if that's it, but it's possible. The third possibility is that you've never been taught about eternal security. And Doug will tell you this, on Monday we went to lunch and I told him until today I wanted him to read 1 John, all five chapters, every day until we came on to church on Sunday. The book of 1 John is a letter written from the Apostle John at the end of his life and ministry to the church, yes, but it's written to the members of the church that they might know that they might know they have Jesus Christ as their Savior have an assurance beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have trusted in the living God, that Jesus is their Savior. The assurance of salvation does not rest on praying precise words. It doesn't rest on fuzzy, warm feelings. Eternal security rests on God keeping His word, not on you. When we look at security tonight and our security, we must understand that at the outset. Jesus said this in John 6 and verse 37, when speaking as the bread of life, he says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, he says what? You finish it. I will in no wise cast out. There is no condition where he will say, you've lost your position, is one preacher's way of saying that. Our passage here in John 10 is the definitive statement about your eternal security. And I wanted to tonight go through the text so that we might understand how we are eternally saved when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. The first thing I'd like us to see, and we begin tonight in chapter 10 and verse 27, is that God's person secures us. It is God's very person that secures us. Notice what Jesus says when talking about his sheep, which if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are his sheep tonight. He said, my sheep, oh, look at the personal nature of this. My sheep hear my voice. And I, personally, I, God, the living Son of God, Jesus Christ, I know them. And what is it that we do? He says, and they follow me. This verse speaks of intimacy. It speaks to personal knowledge. This afternoon, Alec and Audrey were at our house and we're looking forward as we are with the 
Abigail and Chase to their weddings next year. And as we go through these lessons with these newlyweds or soon-to-be-weds, we might say, we go through and talk about Jessica and I, their roles and relationship. But I always take them to 1 Peter chapter 3, and I will say to the husband, what is your one verse of responsibility? It's that the husband dwell according to knowledge. The husband must know his wife. It is a verse here in John 10 and verse 27 of intimacy. I know them, they know me. Tonight, if you want nothing to do with Jesus Christ, it might be the first source is the problem that you've never trusted in Him. But if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then He knows you. He is the perfect husband. He is the perfect bridegroom. This love flows from the nature and the person of who God is. In the person of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, we find the person of God, Jesus Christ, who saves us, who redeems us. He says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. In my Bible, I have scratched through an underline, not crossed out the Bible, I'm not Thomas Jefferson, but I've underlined and scratched out on the side a little word that says, Me. Christ died for me. I was the ungodly. No matter how clean I was growing up in a good Baptist home, I had to come to the point where I recognized it was a personal relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet, peradventure, that word means just perhaps, possibly. For a good man, someone even dare to die. But, here is the absolute uh, demonstration of love, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, those ungodly from the verse in verse 6, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. When we take of the elements this evening, Part of those elements are the blood of Jesus Christ. It is His blood that secures you, not your efforts, not your works, not your feelings. It's His blood that secures you. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the Atonement. That was another passage or a topic that we preached on this year. What does it mean that Christ is our atonement? God's person is what secures us, who He is. Jesus Christ is our guarantee. His very person commends God's love to us. It is a functional love, meaning it is active in our lives. It is evident in our lives. How is it possible that we can be saved, we might say? Because Jesus Christ determined to be our redemption. He determined to be our atonement. A second thought, then, is it's not just His person that secures us. God's purpose secures us as well. In verse number 28, we read here, the Bible says, And I give unto them eternal life. Well, that seems to be the purpose statement of Jesus Christ when He came to earth. 
He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And what did He do in saving us? He offered to us who were dead in our trespasses and sin, those of us who were condemned already, He offered us freedom, liberty, but most importantly, life. That was His purpose. Notice what He says in the the continuation, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Boy, that is a statement of purpose. God's purpose is, after all, to populate heaven with His children, isn't it? I mean, when He created Adam and Eve, His intention... We're not talking His foreknowledge and what He understood would happen. He is omniscient, and thus He knew. But His intention in creating Adam and Eve was to create a sentient, free will being that would choose to love Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they failed, but through Jesus Christ's atoning death, we can, by faith, accomplish His purpose. So God's purpose is to populate heaven or His presence with His children for eternity. And this truth, this purpose, demands security for the believer. That purpose cannot be accomplished if He cannot hold us there, if He cannot keep us there, if He cannot secure us there. And thus Jesus says, hey, my little sheep, understand something. You're safe. You're secure. When we read that great passage at the beginning of Ephesians 1, when it lays out the principle of salvation from a divine perspective, we read in verses 3 through 6 of the Father in heaven. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. What does that phrase mean? He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. God established what the plan of salvation would look like, what it would be like. He purposed before the world began that Jesus must come, that Jesus must die, and the only hope of salvation is that you believe in Him. He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. To what end? That we, because of that salvation, should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. That is one very long sentence, and it teaches us one wonderful principle. God's purpose is that you might be be saved, and become the child of Him. God has chosen us in Christ, He says, to be holy and without blame before Him. That is God's purpose for your life as you've placed your faith and trust in Him. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says in bringing this thought even further forward in Hebrews 2 and verse number 7. Thou madest Him, speaking of Jesus, a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest Him with glory and honor and did set Him over the works of Thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under His feet, for in that He put all in subjection under Him. He left nothing that is not put under Him. But now we see... Not yet all things put under him. By the way, look at the world around you. Does it look like chaos? Yeah. The devil's power has been broken. But the fullness of God's plan and purpose has not come to fruition. And so we see the evil in this world. 
But we see Jesus, he goes on and says, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, or it was necessary, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing what? Many sons. There's that adoption. There's there's that heirship, that sonship, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make him, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. God's avowed purpose is to bring many sons to glory. That's what God wants to do. Why would he do that and say, you know what? I I can't hold you in that state, though. I hope you make it to the end. If God's purpose is to make his sons holy and without blame, bringing them into glory, and one son is lost, then his purpose is defeated. If he can't keep you to the end, if he cannot accomplish his purpose, then he's not God at all. And I know on a Sunday night, that's a deep thought, and some of us are just barely hanging in there, but you're doing great. Sometimes deep truths are what we need to learn. A third thing I think we see here in in John chapter 10 is that God's power secures us. He's told us that neither any man shall pluck him, pluck them out of my hand in verse 28. And in verse 29, he says, my father, which gave them me, is greater. That phrase greater means more powerful. In Christ's present speaking state, that was true because he put upon himself the form of a servant. He had purposefully limited some of his divinity so that he could be a man and be in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So what he says here is absolutely correct. But in Jesus Christ's present state, he is equal with his father. But in his statement here, he says, my father which gave them me is greater than all. and No man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. The key word, by the way, in this phrase, if you're looking at it there in verse 29, what do you think the key word is? It's Sunday night, plus I need to get a drink. Somebody offer and think what the key word in verse 29 is. The guys that do Bible study with me on Romans and others are like, oh no, I know what he's doing here. He's making me think. What is the key word in verse 29? Let me tell you this. Even if you're technically wrong... You can't be wrong by answering, Pastor. No man? Okay, what else do we hear? Somebody else said something. Greater? No man? It's four letters. So far, nobody said it yet. What? Gay? No, no. Who said it? Somebody said it. Ethan said it. I think the key word is able. Now, I'm not suggesting those other words aren't important. Right? If it's in the Bible, every word is important. But I think the key word is able. I mean, all of the other statements are statements of fact, but the word able is statement, I would say, of function. Okay, try it. Sometimes with my boys, I will say, you want to arm wrestle? That's why I started going to the gym in February. Drew's getting bigger. (laughs) I need to keep winning the arm wrestles. Right? Right? All right, if you think you can, if you think you're able, (laughs) down they go. Right? That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. Who has the ability to unsecure us? 
Who has the ability to steal us or take that salvation away? If Jesus, God the Son, says it, and the Father says it, who has the ability to overcome that? No one. It's a statement of power. There is no power able to pluck us from God's salvation. Now, I want you to consider this picture. Does anybody know what that is? Moon from my house. Good guess, Keith. What is that? Light in a dark room. What is it? So far, nobody's been right. Okay, now you're all just, it's like, I feel like it's like, let's make a deal at some point. Here's what that is. Let's go to the next slide. That is everything you know, everything you own, or anywhere you will ever go is in that dot. Do you know what that dot is? It's called, the picture is called, the Great Pale Blue Dot. It was taken by Voyager 1 in 1990, 6 billion miles from planet Earth, as it looked back at its home one last time within visual range. 6 billion, everything you know is on that blue dot. Everything you own is on that blue dot. Everywhere you will ever go. Now, I guess if you got in a spacecraft from Elon or something like that, you might be able to go beyond that blue dot. But you ain't going far because when you look at that, that, that yellow circle around that blue dot, that would encompass all of the travel from our planet to the sun. It's an amazing thought. An amazing thought. And yet we get so wrapped up in the powers that be. God in heaven is not bothered by the little God that runs that pale blue dot right now. But can I tell you something? God's divine attention is on that pale blue dot. It's fascinating. Some of you know I'm a nerd. We have a telescope at our house and it never ceases. No, it wasn't a picture of the moon from my house, but I will take some. I love them. I love looking into the heavens because it reminds me of a many, many, many things. One, how small I am. How genuinely insignificant. Now, he said this isn't a good self-help message. No, I think it is good for our soul to be reminded of just how awesome and great he is and just how often we are insignificant in the matter of life. We run around thinking everything we do is so important. And we also run around thinking that God somehow has lost control. Now, this next picture is a picture of a milk, our Milky Way from the high desert of California, someone said in a picture that I have. It's just a glimpse into our galaxy. Do you know what all those dots are? Some of them are stars. Very good. Do you know what that, that nebula gas is? I mean, that's who knows what. I haven't been there. We're guessing with radiometric testing what those are, red light shift and all of that as it comes back to us. But the point is, as we see it with the visual eye, more than half of the dots that you see on that picture are actually galaxies with billions of stars in them, all emanating their light just from their galaxy. And I do the galaxy like this, but in truth, it is immense. That is just the cloud of our spiral arm of our Milky Way galaxy. We are told that there are 200 billion galaxies, each of them containing billions more stars, just like our sun. There is nearly infinite numbers of them. 
But nothing in any of the vastness of those unimaginable regions has any sway over the God who spoke all of them into being. How do I know that? Because he is an all-powerful God. And so if he, doing that, can say to me, you put your faith and trust in me and you will not lose it, I have to believe it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 says this, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, (laughs) who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? I often in my Bible, where that's at in Romans, have written next to it, Old Job. Who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Friend, you are secure because God is secure in who he is. He is an all powerful God. Finally this evening, God's promises secure us. There is one particular promise that is given here. It's also a statement of fact, but it's a promise that we will not know in its fullness until we see him face to face. But he says this in verse 30, I and my father are one. That's a statement of fact, but in the saying of it, in the telling of it, it was a statement of promise. You'll see someday. Right now, you have to believe me, but one day you will see me face to face when we are glorified and in heaven with him. We will see and know that he and his father are one. John chapter 3 and verse 14, the Bible says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Here's the promise. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Close, McKenna, you were there. That's the next verse. The next verse goes on and says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. I have said this many times when I'm preaching, but I want to draw the point out tonight. What he's promising in those verses, as he's teaching Nicodemus, a rabbi, a seeker, a learner, one that wants to hear from him. What he's teaching him is of the two realities of the life that is his. Eternal life is only God's. He's the only one without beginning and the only one without end. We are finite. We have a beginning point. But when we put our faith and trust in him, what do we have? Everlasting life. His eternal life is promised to us as everlasting life. The next verse says, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. A couple chapters later in John chapter 5, Jesus teaching and preaching says this in verses 24 and 25, Verily, verily, truly, truly, listen, this is the truth, we might say. I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath what? Everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is come. And now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Amen. Hallelujah. That is all of us before we're saved. We were dead. But there was a point where we heard the voice of the Son of God because His sheep know His voice. And when He calls, we listen. He finishes and says, And they that hear shall live. God only offers man one kind of life, and that is eternal life. It's His. It's the only life there is. It's the only life He knows because it's who He is. The security that Jesus is telling us about in John chapter 10 is as a chief, great, and good shepherd who cares for our souls. And He says, I promise to protect you. Who are we to doubt God's promises? The Bible tells us in Him His promises are yea and amen. That means they are settled. So be it. There is not one promise that God has made that has ever failed. He secures us then through His person. He secures us then through His purpose. He secures us then through His power. And finally, He secures us through His very promise. We can commune then tonight around